Welcome to this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I'm here today with Sam Deleska. Welcome, Sam. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about all things Rebuild and OASA and, you know, about the first OASA that there is, the traditional dream factory. Um, last time I saw you was in person about a year and, and, and a half ago or something, um, when traditional dream factory kind of started out in, you know, the south of Portugal. I think a lot has happened in your ecosystem since then. And um, so maybe just guide us into, you know, the overview of this ecosystem that you and the whole team uh, have been building for, for a few years now. And, you know, the, the physical representation in the south of Portugal, you know, I know there's a new white paper that came out. I know you guys are now creating a token that's just been, um, you know, uh, I, I guess has been accepted by the Swiss government as far as I understood. Um, yeah, tell, tell us a bit of, about all of that and, and then we'll dive deeper. Yeah, thank you so much. So, yeah, essentially we've been hard at work, uh, especially on like legal models the last couple of years. Uh, when we created this essentially is the first Web3 conservation fund um, that empowers local regenerative communities to become sovereign um, land um, land stewards and also land um, natural asset providers, basically. Um, and yeah, so we've been really focused on building the first prototype, which is called Traditional Dream Factory, which is located in Abella, about an hour and a half south of Lisbon. Um, and yeah, we got to the land about a year and a half ago. And like you said, like we, we met at uh, Rebuild, which we hosted on, on those lands. Um, so it's been like quite a journey of really just diving down into the the web three and refi rabbit hole so refi being regenerative finance and um after rebuild last year we hosted a tiny crypto event called reencrypt which kind of launched us on this journey of really taking web three seriously and starting to establish all of those systems of governance of um building decentralized economies and kind of getting us to the point uh, where we are today where we have uh, a Web3 token that anyone on the internet will be able to buy soon if they want to support the project and if they believe in the benefit that they can get out of it, which is access to the lands at the traditional Dream Factory. I like what you just said. There is a moment when when you started to take Web3s serious. Let's, uh, let's unpack that because I think for a lot of people, Web3 is still like, you know what what the fuck does that even mean and i know i've hosted a lot of dialogues and interviews about it so i i have a bit of an idea uh but i'd love to hear it from from your perspective sam and i'd love to just yeah maybe guide us through that like what you were thinking beforehand and um what changed that you realized okay actually there is going to be a continuous evolution of the internet the way we know it yeah so i mean we we had been looking at web3 since the early days of oasa already like in 2019 uh, we had been talking to a few people back in new york who were kind of seeing it as the next thing and so on um, i had a bit of resistance to it especially in the beginning uh, because it's a lot of like speculative behaviors that we see in the market and it adds this whole layer of complexity, which you're putting on top of something that's already quite complex, like building a physical village and figuring out all of those systems. Um, but what I come to realize over time is that 
even though it is like adding another complex system into the pile of things that you have to learn when you're starting a village, um, it, it does create a way to really streamline the kind of interaction that we want to be creating in the future and to be aligning the incentives of the long run. Um, so yeah, like one of the main reasons that I really think this idea of Web3 can be super potent in land-based DAOs and land-based crypto projects is that it just enables uh, token holders to entry the system super easily. You can just buy the tokens. It's as simple as going on an exchange if your token is listed there or on your sales page if you have like a, a platform. Um, and then you can buy the tokens or potentially you can even swap the tokens if you have uh, some other form of tokens, um, for example, from another village or whatever it is. So it just facilitates this whole entry to the village, but also, and most importantly, it facilitates the exit because um, in the current uh, situation, if you, if you want to start this kind of regenerative village or co-living project or whatever it is, you get together with, with your friends, you buy up some lands, uh, but then you're kind of stuck there because now you own this land title and, and it's hard to kind of divide it up and redistribute it, give it to someone else. Like it's, it involves a lot of paperwork, legal costs and all these kind of things. Whereas um, in our case now, it just enables you to just resell the token if you start believing in the project or if you just want to move on and move to some other place, uh, now you're able to just resell the token provided there's a, a liquidity market for it. Um, and the transaction is super smooth. So for us, it's, I would say the big advantage is in facilitating that exit from the community. I would say that's a big advantage. Mm. Uh, but then over the last year, uh, I've also been getting more involved with the refi movement. And so, uh, refi regenerative finance is seeking to align the interest of the planet, um, with the financial system. So the way that it does that is by um, trying to essentially value a living tree more than a dead tree. That's kind of the, the simple, simplified version of it. Example, yeah. And yeah, and I really see how Web3 can become a potent force in order to do that and to drive towards what Charles Eisenstein has described as a sacred economy, where we start to really valuing things that are alive rather than just based on uh, how much timber we can extract and how many resources we can extract from nature, but just valuing nature for its uh, true potential, for its life-sustaining potential, for all the benefits that are provided, not just to us as a landowner, but also to the rest of the ecosystem around it, to the entire planet and so on. Right on. Yeah, it's, it's you know, and, and this is a process that we're all in together. So there is like a lot of figuring out on the on the way. But, you know, there is this highly complexified digital uh, world that we have created. But just like the Internet didn't exist 30 years ago, I think we, we know at this point that it will continue to change. And there are some decisions to make and some things we might want to say no to and some things we might want to say yes to. Right. And so um, creating a much more. Um, yeah, just like a deeper transparency and understanding of what we're actually doing with um you know with with physically real things like let's say trees uh or land and how how to track that i mean you know most most pieces of land on the planet we're not physically there but if there is a um a form of making that transparent or visible on a three-dimensional interface 
you know, that might really help us to transition from ownership into stewardship, which I know is one of the, you know, the, the big kind of um, beliefs behind OASA. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, I've heard you say this before that, you know, changing the way we live is very likely the most impactful way to change ourselves and our planet into a regenerative society. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like when you say changing the, the way we live, like how does that apply to anyone listening, no matter how they live right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way that I like to, like the reason that I say this is because when, when you try to, to, to tackle climate change, when you look at this, such a big issue as climate change, um, it just becomes super overwhelming. And I think people over the last 10 years or 20 years or, or even more, um, we keep hearing this like climate change issue, but it's really hard for us to take any action because we live within the constraint of a system that produces those externalities, but changing that system is really, really hard. So I think the solution to that is really looking locally and how can we make sure that with every interaction that we take within our little local system, that we can create positive benefits for the planet and for the local ecosystem around us. Uh, and so that's really what we've been trying to design at OASA. Um, and, and we like to call it a conserve to live model. So basically the idea is that you, you purchase the OASA tokens. Um, the OASA network is set up so that um, it creates positive ex externalities. Um, so the more you, 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 the more you conserve the land and the more benefits you will get as a member. Um, so, so we're looking at locally, for example, um, I mean, first it comes to like sustainability. How do we reduce our impact? How we, how do we use, you know, um, sustainable construction materials? How do we reduce the amount of waste that we produce? How do we, uh, introduce more circularity into, into our local economy, um, composting, re reusing all of the waste that we produce, um, and just trying to source all of the resources as locally as we can uh, and i mean that's that's a bit of a permaculture principle which is trying to just optimize for the resources you already have on your land rather than importing uh, external goods because that over time uh, is well it, it reduces the the cost basically so it, it also makes your project more efficient in terms of resources um so yeah, so we're basically trying to, first of all, yeah, reaching a state of better sustainability, but then what we're really trying to do is creating this regenerative behavior where we actually are growing forest. Um, for example, we just planted a food forest, about 0 0.7 hectares. Uh, we planted about a thousand trees in it. Um, and this food forest is not only sequestering carbon, producing, uh, food for us, uh, producing ecosystem benefits. And all of these things, these things that we can start to measure and track over time so that we can actually prove on chain uh, how regenerative this model really is. So we're starting to track, for example, uh, the second uh, forestation project that we have, which is uh, also about 0 0.7 hectares and where we planted, I think to date about 2000 trees. Um, and so this system is now being tracked on open forest protocol. Open forest protocol is a decentralized, uh, MRV layer. So monitoring and reporting and validation, um, which basically enables us to 
first of all, track the total biomass growth over time. So we can actually put a number to how much carbon we are sequestering into the soil. Um, and then we want to be adding more of these primitives over time that can uh, help us have like a proof of regeneration. So being able to see how much biodiversity um, we have on the land and how that trends over time, how much carbon we're sequestering, uh, how much water we're retaining, how we are actually rebuilding those water cycles. Um, and so our idea is just to start implementing all of these refi protocols in order to track the proof of regeneration that we have. And then we want to link that in with the protocol that we developed, which is called proof of presence, which is essentially just tracking how much time each member spends within the project. And so when you divide the proof of regeneration by the proof of presence, you kind of have your regenerative living index. So you can actually know how many benefits you created simply by interacting with our ecosystem rather than by interacting with the default world, which has in general negative externalities. Mm. Yeah, this is fascinating. And, you know, I feel like at some point it gets highly, um, not complex, but it gets just like, you know, quite quite the big ecosystem within itself which is why you know i wanted to have you share about it and you know just to, to kind of backtrack what what you're saying so oasa is kind of the you know the the network itself right and then traditional dream factory is the first project within that that network or like a, a prototype in that sense where um you know there's a regeneration of the land happening i think i remember that um it used to be a chicken farm or something like that and then you guys bought it as a group of people um and and basically through this first rebuild event uh, a year and a half ago in you know 2021 september 2021 um you basically brought in over a hundred people to this land to to really catalyze action, right? And we're fortunate in Portugal that this is one of the the hubs or the hotspots where a lot of people come through. You know, it's kind of connects uh, people from all over the world. In in when they come through Europe, Portugal has has come uh, become very active on that map. Um, what do you you know? Let's learn about some of the let's learn learn with you about some of those challenges. What has happened? at traditional dream factory so far where you're like surprised uh, both in the you know positive um surprises but also maybe some of the challenging surprises where where you realize okay wow um you know starting a new society isn't isn't only easy yeah for sure um i mean the the biggest challenge and i mean i think that's everywhere you look is like human systems and you know, you can put fancy words like DAOs and Web3 and all of those things, but what it really means is just a matter of uh, coordination. How do you bring a group of people together, incentivize them to do the work and to actually be present and to make the project a reality? Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm really proud of where we are today. Basically, in the traditional Dream Factory DAO, we have about 20 contributors at the moment. Um, and those are people that have been contributing to the project to through their involvement in circles. So we're kind of organized in a social aquatic manner. We have circles. So for example, we have a tokenization circle, a legal circle. Uh, we had an architecture circle, a coordination circle, and so on. Um, and these circles is really what drives the project. So um, yeah, I, I think like, that that's really been the biggest challenge that we have is like kind of reframing all of these organizational things um setting up incentive models and decision uh, making models and so on 
um and and just like keeping it playful and i think that's really important that we don't see this as like a nine-to-five job but that this is really like a way of being and that we actually are excited by doing it um, and there's no we don't have any bosses as this is like a bottoms up organization anyone is free to basically engage and participate in the project that they want to participate in where they have expertise and so on um and yeah i mean all of that takes a lot of time um and a lot of effort and yeah we've been super blessed to have amazing people coming through and like you said that's been really um in large part thanks to all the beautiful events that we hosted starting with rebuild but then all right like two months after rebuild we hosted an event called primal gathering uh, with about 80 people and that's where we planted the reforestation project um, and then right after that we had this re-encrypt event which launched us on this web3 journey and then we also hosted refi spring and uh, heart magica which was like a collaboration between project heart and magica um, yeah and and just i think every time we host these events um it catalyzes some energy onto the land and also it brings out all this human capital and brings all of these interesting people so i would say today like we're at a point where we have like a lot of pioneers from the space who have either come through or at least heard about tdf and everyone kind of shares this common dream of like a regenerative civilization and that's really what's driving people to work on this project and to come together and to show up and be present. Yeah, brilliant. And I, you know, I, I get it. This is a process in the making. So I'd, I'd love to just, you know, in this episode also learn learn more about you, Sam, and how how all of this is, you know, shaping your life at this point, you know, and maybe maybe you want to take us back to that moment when you realize, you know what, the most important place I could invest my own energy is in, in the way I live and in the way my own uh, footprint is, you know, not just a small footprint, but like a graceful footprint in the interaction with the planet, right? So what happened for you? I, I remember you you're saying uh, earlier you were living in New York um, before this, right? You're, you, you lived in, in, in Denmark and in France before that too, but like, was there like a click, a click moment where you're like, fuck this, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to um, you know, invest into a piece of land and, and just figure this out with, with friends and allies? Like, what was that moment for you? I think it's been like a gradual moment, like a gradual progression. Um, I mean, I was living as a digital nomad for, for a long time, just hopping around from Airbnb to Airbnb, living in all these beautiful places around the world, but really having a sense of disconnection from the spaces that I was living in. Um, mm. I wasn't able to basically live sustainably. I wasn't able to have really like a sense of purpose or belonging. And I feel like the whole uh, marketplace has been so commodified, especially with Airbnb. Like uh, I, there's just not so much soul in it anymore. And to me, it was about that. It was about rebuilding places that you can just tap into and where you can regenerate yourself and regenerate the planet. Um, and yeah, I would say I had a moment of realization, uh, after purchasing TDF and living on the land there. And, you know, I, I, when I, when I talk to people about the project, I sometimes talk about, okay, in 10 years, this is going to happen in 2050, this is what it's going to look like. 
And for some people, this is really hard to grasp, but this is also how we started OASA. We started from what is the 2050 vision? Where do we want to go? What does the world look like in 2050? And so when you look from that perspective, um, it just really changes the ways that you approach things. And I had this moment of realization when I, when I was like, yeah, like this, this is a project that I'm probably going to be working on for the rest of my life. Or even if I don't work on it the whole time, like this is here to stay. And like, I'm really committed to this really long-term vision of living because you can't make a regenerative project in a year or in five years. It takes seven years to change an ecosystem and to start restoring some of those natural cycles. So it doesn't make any sense to try and plan something for the short, short term. And I think going back to this mentality of like seven generations thinking um, is really what we want to get to over time. And even the whole sense of ownership that we're building, it's transitioning from this sense of ownership that comes from Roman law, which is what we abide by today when we buy property and so on, which is the right to um, the right to get the fruit of, the right to use, and the right to destroy. So, so literally the three things that were in the Roman law and that, that got kind of got transcribed into our current legal system, whereas uh, this, the, the definition of ownership that we want to aspire to uh, is, a, is a one that um, native tribes and so on have been cultivating in the past, which was the, the right to get the fruit of and the right to care for. So it's just, mm. yeah, when you, when you really start to embody that and to accept that you are not here to just extract resources from the space that you own, but you're here to actually make it a better place and leave a positive trace, it kind of just changes your, your relationship to it. And we, we kind of, yeah, stop having this, um, yeah, just, just like the sense of, um, unhealthy control, basically, that I think is very predominant in our society. Mm, yeah. And you said it, it's, you know, uh, kind of made itself, um, incredibly powerful by becoming the, the dominant, uh, legal system, right? We could, we could have the same conversation about what the calendar is. And, you know, I, I, I think I vaguely remember the word calendar comes from a Latin word, which is calendaris. And, and that, that means to taxate, right? So it's like, there is, there are quite a few roots that lead us back to, you know, the, the Roman empire and, and the way that that just continued to perpetuate in legal systems and, uh, financial systems on the, on the planet at this point. But, there are many people, and I know many of those people are listening. That um, you know are just they are just ready to change things, do things differently. And obviously, uh, nothing is only ever going to be positive without any repercussions. So, like, yeah, we will make mistakes, and you know, pioneers by definition will will make some of the biggest mistakes. And so then we we pick up and learn again. I'm curious about that journey for you since you started OASA, OASA and uh, you know uh, TDF. Like, what are some of the maybe like two or three lessons that you kind of wish you knew before you started, but that you ran into like right from the get go? <laughs> hmm. Um, I, I would say like one is around like timeline, <laughs> just like when you committed to a, to a project in, in 2050, like, yeah, you just have to kind of let go of, um, of timelines a little bit. Um, so really try to build for the long term. Um, 
and don't try to force things because I think a lot of things get lost when we really like try to bring this like energy and like kind of fighting against the system. I think it's much easier to just describe what you want to do in the future and like in a perfect world mm. without having like um, what well, it's called hypersticians basically like you project yourself in the future and you create this better version of the future without all the constraints of, of today. Um, and that just mm -hmm. allows that vision to unfold. I think that's that's like a really powerful element. Um, then, yeah, I mean, in terms of lessons, um, I would say the hardest part for us has really been this kind of uh, legal challenge. How can we actually register this kind of project and, and how to set that up? That's what we've been working on for the last two years. Um, it's really not a journey that I wish anyone else to, to, to take on. Um, so yeah, now anyone that wants to start it, they can at least start from where we are. Everything is basically public. Our white paper describes how we do it and it links to our articles of association. So, uh, hopefully that, that alleviates some of the problems for, for the next people who pick it up. Um, something else is around like what, what is actual land stewardship? And that's something that yeah. is is really hard to to determine. Um, we wrote those uh, principles of regeneration and land stewardship, which is basically the the base layer of OASA. It's what describes what can happen on OASA lands, and this is what all the DAOs and all of the members of the DAOs abide to when they're actually using the lands. Um, but figuring out what that means, like how do we actually enforce regeneration? That is a really hairy topic and you have a lot of opinions um, and, you know, you have everything from the silver pasture people who are advocating for using animals and rotational grazing and all of the things. And then you have syntropic forestry and all of these other types of ways to achieve regener regeneration. And I think that's like a really hairy problem to solve and to actually like um to decide what's best for the land uh and everything is really context dependent as well so you really need to have someone who can take ownership of that piece and really enter the conversation and the dialogues that you have to have with the land um without trying to force things and without necessarily being prescribed to one specific way of doing things but just really listening to the land and figure out what's best for you and what's right for you. And and you're going to have a lot of people telling you very different things. Um, so yeah, my advice would be get someone who you really trust and who can help you have that conversation with the land. I think that's really important. Mm. Yeah, th that is very interesting. Uh, both the, the direction into trust and I, you know, I'll, I'll flag this for another question in a few minutes, but also this idea of like, who are the actual stewards and elders of land that can teach us things at this stage of our society, right? Because they, they exist. There, there are people that, you know, have done incredible work, but then there's also a bit of a vacuum just as much, you know, where it's like, depending on where you are in the world, there's, you know, very little indigenous knowledge left, uh, or, you know, it's been, it's been so, um, you know, so under such tough pressure over decades and decades and so much pain that it's really hard to, to connect to the, the, the depth that's still there, um, uh, you know, and 
how how did you guys do that in in Portugal with you know the first project that is the traditional dream factory like how did you find mentors or stewards that you know maybe embody ideas like centropic foresting or you know have have you know places like Tamera for example that isn't too far from you that has learned a thing or two about living in community because every project is unique but still there, there's so much that can be learned from others no yeah 100% um I mean, again, we had a lot of experts coming through those events that we've been hosting. So that's been really good. And I mean, for us, it's been really like a playground because we actually experimenting with different types of doing forestry, like, because I mean, I'm not a permaculture expert, like I've learned a thing of two by, by starting this project and by being on the land for so long. But so, I mean, we're trying out the syntropic farming model. We're trying out like native reforestation. Uh, probably in the future, there's going to be some kind of rotational grazing thing happening because that, that's kind of what you can do at scale. Um, so yeah, we have, we, I mean, we really see ourselves as a playground and an experimentation and a bit of a research mm -hmm. lab within all of those fields and also bringing together both the Web3 aspect and uh, in, the, in the soil land regeneration. Um, and so we were lucky to have amazing advisors like Mark Lieber, who, who has been working with Ernst Gorsch in Brazil. And so he's pioneering a syntropic uh, forestry model for the climate of Portugal. Uh, so we were lucky to be able to have access to his land, see what he's doing, how you can create this kind of model. Um, but then recently we've been working more and more with uh, Adam, who, who has been yeah, really helpful in having this consistent presence and commitment to our land and helping us have this conversation of what the land needs and how can we do it, what are our objectives and so on. And and being realistic about how much effort can you actually put into farming. I mean, if you're going to live in the countryside and uh, like you're going to realize that running a farm takes a lot of effort and also in some cases skills, but I would say mostly like a lot of effort. And are you actually willing to commit that to, to it? Um, like don't just go out and plant a hundred thousand trees if you cannot take care of them or if it doesn't make sense uh, for the soil. So you have to be a bit smart about, yeah, looking at all of your resources and skills and, and what you can actually commit to best. Um, and then we also had the chance to have, for example, Thomas Ludet, who was designing the water landscapes at uh, Tamera, or at least like implementing them. Um, yeah, I think the initial design were from Sepulza. Um, but yeah, Thomas Ludet has been basically designing those water landscapes. And I mean, we made some mistakes, like for example, um, we had an advisor before that uh, who was based in Mexico and he was helping us design um, some of the water systems and Unfortunately, we started, for example, digging uh, a lake, which we thought would be a great idea to retain some water, um, but turned out that that lake was not well uh, positioned. So actually we had to abandon mm. the project. And and so we kind of, um, yeah, had to like restart that whole process um, and, and leave it until later. So yeah, again, it's a matter of like having people who really can help you understand the landscape and the land and have that conversation and working with them consistently to get to the outcomes that you want to have. Mm. Yeah, this is something I found quite interesting in, in your white paper as well. Uh, there was a um, 
white paper that there is a scenario of possible failures that you know kind of you're anticipating as well just just so that i guess that conversation is on the table right you know from construction costs to just like community disagreements or um you know force mayor like anything you know unforeseen from climate to physical damage to the property happening um i, I guess to make a question out of this and maybe maybe even a personal question you know not everything always goes right but things can work out when we when we grow resilient and we learn how to pick up what's what's left and continue to go with it right like how would you describe this process of resilience building in your own life like what did you have to learn was it like you know um did where, where did you learn you know the key the key skill of resilience i think is my question here like what happened for you that you're like fuck it i'm just gonna keep picking it up and keep putting my best in hmm wow what a question <laughs> i that's a very good question yeah um i mean i think it's been i was always kind of interested in economic systems and i think there's a lot we can learn from economy and i think in a lot of regenerative projects this is like one aspect that's kind of missing um you have a lot of beautiful eco communities and so on that really know how to work with the land and that really put a lot of effort in how do they work together, but they kind of leave out the economic side because it's almost taboo in these communities. It's something that we don't want to talk about and money is like a great evil. Uh, but I think there's a, there can be beauty in, in money as long as we can like shift it's, uh, what it's actually generating in the world if we can shift that to, mm -hmm. to actually produce more beauty and to produce more natural capital and to just create a, a better system. Um, and so, so I look at it as, yeah, like resiliency is basically bringing more, in our case, for example, it's bringing more income streams to, to a project, right? Like just like in permaculture, you don't want to be just growing say corn because if uh, a corn bug arrives and eats all your corn, then you go from 100% uh, to zero. Uh, so you want to diversify. And I mean, that, that has a parallel in economy, right? If you want to have a stable portfolio, you diversify and you, you invest in multiple uh, kind of financial assets. Um, and, and so we want to diversify and then have multiple income streams coming from all of the things that the land can actually produce in abundance. So first cultivating the abundance of the land and then only harvesting the harvesting the, the excess basically mm. um i think that's how you kind of create a resilient system and i think it's about giving time like i think in our society we're so so focused on the short term and how can we maximize profits and so on and so on um but i think as soon as you have this commitment of um as soon as you have the commitment to to a land and that you know that you're not gonna go away you're gonna be there forever i mean more or less <laughs> then then that kind of start to shift your perception and and you start to invest in resiliency rather than trying to just extract from it and this is really what we're committing to with oasa it's we're creating a one-way bridge where we can take land out of the private market and protect it into this conservation fund um, mm -hmm. but the land can never be sold again. We can't just like cash out and 
just extract that values that we produced. So we have to create, in a way, resilient regenerative systems that can produce a benefit that we want to have in our lifetime, but while also creating the benefit that um, for the rest of the ecosystem and for the planet. Yeah, I want to loop back into the topic of trust that we were kind of scratching on earlier. And so, uh, again, I'll ask it, you know, personally to you, Sam, um, not talking about the projects as much. I mean, if, if you have an example from your experience in the project, that that's cool, too. But I'd love to know what it um, what is required for you personally to experience trust? And if you can, like, how does it actually feel in your body to to feel trust? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think trust is, uh, trust happens when you, when you don't think other agents have, um, the, the possibility to basically have negative impact on you. Um, or if you believe that other agents will, yeah, just um, for like if if the, if the other agents are disincentivized <laughs> from um, basically causing you harm, and if everyone kind of trusts in that system, um, yeah, I think I think you build trust basically by um, by removing the upsides of of cheating in a system a little bit and i mean and as i'm going back a bit to my to the project but this is just the way that we've been trying to to design it is that there is like you cannot cheat the system because we we literally like prevent us from the the, the fact that we cannot sell the land prevents us from trying to speculate on what we would gain from exiting and from doing an action that would cause harm to other agents in the system. Um, so I think trying to take out those incentives for bad behaviors uh, so that you don't have to think about it in the first place, that's how we can then really focus on, okay, what's actually here. And if we know that we're going to be here for, for the long run, then what do we actually want to do? And and I think trust is created by rebuilding relationships, um, by rebuilding relationships, not only with other humans, but also with the land, with the food that we eat, with all of the things around us. And so when you have this kind of local view of relationships and you know where, where things come from and you can kind of see this cause and effect loop of how things uh, are rippling through the system, then you can start to build trust because you know that one relationship is going to affect another relationship, which is going to affect something else. And so you can kind of see the circularity of, of the actions that you have in the system. Hmm. Yeah, man, thank you so much for, for your answers and for your time in this interview. I have two more questions for you, Sam. Um, you know, you, you brought up playfulness a few times as like one of the maybe like the through lines of the projects, right? It's like, um, it's 
what I heard you say earlier too is like thinking decade, not days, like big picture, but then coming back to the playfulness of it. And so I'm curious here today in, in this moment, if you personally, right, or with a team of, you know, your chosen experts could change the education system um, at large, like what would you change? <laughs> hmm. Um, I mean, learning by doing, <laughs> being out there, like I think, like this kind of formal education that that we've been molded into is just not longer relevant because the world is changing so fast that there's just there's not one skill that you can learn in university and then that's going to be it for the rest of your life so you have to really learn by by doing and and just like getting uh, again, I think like what really matters for the project is the level of excitement that you can have about it. Because if you can have someone like truly thrilled and excited and passionate about working on a cause, it doesn't really matter if they don't have the skills or you know if uh, or what it is. Because you can learn skills and and all of these things. So if you really have the drive, I think that's really the the most important thing and being playful and doing things out of pleasure basically it just enables us to to have that drive and to be much more excited about working and and doing the things so yeah that's why i think we need to really shift the focus from let's let's work hard to solve these problems and just look at how do we just live and how do how can we just be within those systems that are actually doing the right things and just starting to shift into more like a a system thinking approach that's both playful and regenerative right on I'd, i i'd love to hear your answer to that last question too which is um you know let's zoom out together you you said 2050 earlier um let's go out further on the timeline i, I remember you also mentioned thinking in seven generations so like just for the the moment let's let's think in seven generations uh you know what's your dream for those seven generations in the future right meaning like we're going to be ancestors of those generations at some point and like what's your dream for this planet earth that that you're dreaming into into being that you're here to to dream into reality Hmm. Thank you. Um, I mean, my dream is, is very simple. It's like a, a land where you can, where you or any animals or any living beings can roam free and can harvest from the abundance of nature without being constrained from fences and gates and economic, oppressive economic systems and so on. And where just through being, you can actually, um, you can work towards your purpose and and yeah just having a systems around you that actually sustain life rather than destroys it beautiful the dream of stewardship sam thank you so much for your time for the work you do with oasa the work you you guys are doing at traditional dream factory um yeah if there's anything you want to add, add before we wrap this episode this is the moment yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I would say, yeah, if you're interested in learning more about how we can build a regenerative lifestyle, just visit traditionaldreamfactory.com and um, start the process of your membership. Um, we're yeah, inviting all the dreamers, uh, crypto techno hippie 
uh, folks to come and hang out and try out this lifestyle. And I hope many people will just start to copy this model and help us transition into a regenerative civilization. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. <laughs>